Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. So as, as we've been going through John for the last couple of weeks, I hope that you've begun to see what I find, one of the things that I find to be so fascinating about John's gospel. And that is that John presents Jesus as someone who just simply says really radical things. I've had a lot of good teachers in my life, by God's grace, and none of my teachers, as good as they were, dared say some of the things that Jesus says in this gospel. And so, in my opinion, to simply say that Jesus was just a good moral teacher just doesn't cut it. He calls himself the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. He calls himself the bread of the life, the bread of life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me will bear much fruit. Friends, these are not the words of simply a good moral teacher. These are the words of someone who either sees himself as God himself or who is crazy. And we see something very similar today in John chapter 3. Jesus continues to expose to the world, to expose to his disciples, and to expose to us as readers who he is and why he came by talking about this concept of the new birth, being born again, which is about radical change. 
It's about the radical change that is required even for the best of us. As we're going through John, we see in each week, uh, Jesus presenting himself in a fresh way through these eyewitness accounts that have been provided for us by the apostle John. We saw that Jesus is the word who enters into the world to make God known. We saw that he's the lamb who comes to take away sin. Last week, we saw at the feast that Jesus is the true bridegroom, the better bridegroom who comes to pursue his bride, his people with his matchless grace. And today we'll see Jesus show us that he's the son of God through this encounter that he has with this man named Nicodemus, where he talks about being born again. Now, to be born again is a phrase that if you grew up in America, you probably have heard on numerous occasions. And in most of the context in which you've heard that phrase, it's probably misrepresented. And so today I want us to think about how Jesus portrays the new birth. What does it mean and what can we learn from this interaction he has with Nicodemus. So let me summarize the main idea like this. Even the best of humanity must have new birth from God received as a gift from the Father. That's the main idea. Even the best of humanity must have new birth from God received as a gift from the Father. We're going to break that sentence into three parts, and that will be our outline for the morning. So first, we see that even the best of humanity needs the new birth. Before we look at chapter 3, verse 1, if you would, if you have a Bible, just look in verses 23 through 25 of chapter 2, the immediately preceding verses to our text. A lot of people are believing in Jesus. We read there in verse 23. And then in verse 24 of chapter 2, John says, Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to these people who were believing in him because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now that's really interesting. A lot of people, at least to some degree, are captivated by Jesus after he turns the water into wine, after he cleanses the temple. But Jesus is skeptical. Jesus is skeptical, John tells us here. We read that Jesus knows men's hearts. He knows that man is fickle that man is untrustworthy. And then, as if to illustrate that insight, we see this man, Nicodemus, in chapter 3, verse 1. And you've got to see that this story tells us that even the most impressive of humanity, even the most impressive of us, represented here by Nicodemus, has the same radical need for God to act on their behalf. The same need as anyone else. And in other words, if Nicodemus needs something like the new birth, something that radical to enter into the kingdom of God, then all of us need the new birth. If we're going to enter into the kingdom of God, if we're going to be saved, if we're going to know life eternal. So who is this guy, Nicodemus? Look at these first couple of verses. Nicodemus, we read, comes to Jesus and John calls him a ruler of the Jews, a man of the Pharisees. And then in verse 10, if you want to look there, he calls him the teacher of Israel. I think it's really good to read that the teacher of Israel. You could capitalize all three of those letters, the, the main teacher. He is the head of the teachers. He is high on the hierarchy of the religious establishment of Jesus's day. He's a Pharisee. 
And Pharisees, no matter what you might think of them, it's undeniable that they were seriously religious. They were seriously devoted as a Jewish sect in Jesus' time. These were people that knew their Bibles. They knew the Old Testament. They kept the law very seriously. They were moral, they were upright, and they were pure. So that's Nicodemus. He's learned, he's devout. From a first century Jewish perspective, Nicodemus is extremely, extremely impressive. He's not just any regular Pharisee or teacher. He's at the top of the religious food chain. Nicodemus is like the Hermione Granger of Pharisees. You know, he's an overachiever. He has all the right answers. He gets it. He's respected. He's exactly the kind of person who people think does not need to be born again. That's Nicodemus. And look at what he says to Jesus. First, he calls him, verse 2, rabbi or teacher. Now, that's a term of respect. And it's correct as far as it goes. He says to Jesus, we know that you've come from God. Now, that isn't necessarily a confession of Jesus's preexistence before the world was made. But he certainly thinks of Jesus at this point as a gifted teacher of God's law. And then he recognizes something special in Jesus. He says, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus, it seems, is close. He's oh so very close to getting Jesus, to understanding who Jesus is and why Jesus came. Which is why what Jesus says to him is so fascinating. Look in verse 3. So Nicodemus has approached Jesus, the head of the religious order of his day, and he said some really nice things. And Jesus abruptly and strangely responds by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot, is not able to see the kingdom. Now that is direct and that is radical. Why is Jesus so forceful? I mean, why doesn't Jesus just say probably what you or I would have expected him to say. Why doesn't he say something more modest? Why isn't he a little bit kinder? For example, maybe Jesus should have said, Nicodemus, just take one more spiritual step, which I'm going to teach you, and then you will get it. Or just do one more biblical task. Or just think a little bit more highly of me, Nicodemus, Or add one more crucial theological conviction to your faith. Jesus doesn't say any of those things. What is Jesus thinking? How can Jesus say to a man like Nicodemus, listen, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. Think about it like this. Apparently there's a football game going on tonight. I I didn't really know that until this morning. That's not true. I knew. And uh, the Super Bowl's tonight, in case you didn't know. You've been under a rock or you don't care about sports. God bless you if you don't. Um, and tonight, the Patriots play the Eagles, and the Eagles don't deserve to even be in the game. They're a terrible franchise. No one should like the Eagles. Uh, right, Jimmy? Is Jimmy in here? We've got an Eagles fan in here. Uh, the Patriots, on the other hand, have been to eight Super Bowls under their head coach, Bill Belichick. They've won five of them. This is their eighth one. And uh, Bill Belichick is... I hate to admit it, you know, widely regarded as maybe the greatest professional football coach of all time. So imagine Bill Belichick putting in an application, not to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but let's say just to the Massachusetts High School Football Hall of Fame and being rejected because he's not qualified enough. Or think about it like this. Imagine that uh, 
the chief justice of the Supreme Court or the attorney general of the United States were to apply to a local law school here in San Antonio and have their application dismissed out of hand because their qualifications are not high enough to meet the standard of admission. That's what it's like for Nicodemus to hear from Jesus. Nicodemus, you can't get into the kingdom of God. You don't meet the basic qualification required. Nicodemus has all of the qualifications. He has all of the letters after his name. He has all of the degrees. So what's Jesus doing? Here's what Jesus wants Nicodemus to understand. And here's what he wants you to understand. Radical action is required even for the best of humanity. No one can enter the kingdom. No one can be saved. No one can get access to God and therefore access to life based on anything in them or on anything they have accomplished. Rudolf Boltman writes this. Rebirth means something more than an improvement in man. It means that man receives a new origin. And this is manifestly something which he cannot give himself. Now listen to me. This is something that we need to hear if we're to see Jesus rightly. And it's especially true in our place and in our time. Many of us come from what we would call churched backgrounds. Many of us are from very good families, and we've been taught the Bible since we were babies. Some of us have read the Westminster Confession of Faith, for crying out loud. You might even have memorized some of the questions of the shorter catechism. You've studied at good schools. Some of you have read a lot of good books. Many of us have vital prayer lives and are serving the poor and the marginalized regularly. Many of us have been in amazing churches. Listen, all of that is great. All of those are good things, but all of that is irrelevant, completely irrelevant when it comes to gaining access to the kingdom of God, when it comes to salvation. You need to hear this. Jesus is saying here that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're religious or irreligious. It doesn't matter if you are moral or immoral. It doesn't matter if you are churched or unchurched. It doesn't matter if you have a PhD in theology or if you're a high school dropout. It doesn't matter if everyone sees you as a stand-up citizen or if everyone sees you as an outcast loser. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your moral performance record is. It doesn't matter who your family is or what churches you've worshipped at. All of us need the new birth. Even the best of us require a radical encounter with God to enter the kingdom which we can't provide for ourselves. Let's look more at that idea. So even the best of us, even the best of humanity, Jesus says, must have new birth. That's what he talks about beginning in verse 3. He repeatedly tells Nicodemus in 3 and 5 and 7, you must be born again. You must be born from above. And Nicodemus clearly doesn't get it. Look at verse 4. He's not sure whether he should take Jesus literally or not. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? We're not sure if he's being sarcastic. I think that's likely. He's like, yeah, okay, Jesus. Like, I can be born again. I mean, come on. Or if he's trying to think, okay, should I take this literally? But clearly, he just doesn't get it. He's not following at all, right? And so the question is, what does Jesus mean? What does it mean to be born again? There's a very good reason 
that Jesus uses such a radical image, the image of birth, when he is referring to salvation and how to attain it. He wants Nicodemus to understand, and he wants us to understand this, that you have as much to do with your second birth into God's new world as you did with your first birth into this world. The image of the new birth is intended to teach that no one can enter salvation on his or her own. Only God can give it to you. That's what Jesus is talking about there in verses 5 through 8 when he uses that water and spirit language. That verse uh, comes from an Old Testament book. A prophet named Ezekiel is who Jesus is thinking about when he's speaking to Nicodemus here. And if you were to go and read Ezekiel chapter 36, you would see Ezekiel prophesying. He's saying the word of the Lord that God has put in his heart and on his lips. And he tells God's people that one day God will sprinkle clean water on them and they will be clean and pure. And he will give them a new heart and he will put his spirit within them. And then in Ezekiel 37, the next chapter, we read a really interesting story. God gives Ezekiel a vision of this valley, big, huge valley. Just picture yourself there, that you're in the middle of a a valley, mountains on either side, and the valley is completely full of dry, dusty bones. There's skulls and there's femurs, whatever other kind of bones you can envision or think of. They're all there, dusty, old, brittle. And God comes to Ezekiel and he says, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says no. And then God sends the wind or the Holy Spirit to give new life. Whoa, don't lose the notes. To give new life to the bones. And then God closes that prophecy by telling Ezekiel this. Listen to this. Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. You shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves. I will put my spirit within you and you shall live I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. That's what Jesus is getting at in verse 8 when he says, The wind blows wherever it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. In other words, in every case, in every instance, new birth comes unilaterally and solely from the Holy Spirit. From the Holy Spirit giving it to us, it does not come in any way from our achieving or earning or deserving it. It's not our action that causes new birth, just like it was not our action that caused our first birth. It's divine action that causes new birth. It's the action of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus, nothing you can do will get you there. Only what the Spirit can do will get you there. He says to be saved, you have to have new birth from above. And then in verse 10, all the way through verse 15, Jesus continues to tell Nicodemus about how he can't enter the kingdom. He can't have salvation on his own. But he transitions his images here. He moves from the work of the Spirit in new birth to the work of the Son at the cross. And here's what's going on. Jesus is saying that the Spirit gives people new birth solely and unilaterally, So that we can see the Son of Man, Jesus, for who he is and for what he came to do. That's what that language in verse 14 is about. 
Look at that. Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, that serpent in the wilderness language is another reference to the Old Testament. And it's a reference to an obscure story in Numbers, fourth book of the Bible, chapter 21. And this is after the people of God, Israel, has been, uh, has been rescued out of Egypt, out of slavery. They've crossed the Jordan, and they're wandering in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And they're rebellious and complaining as usual. And so God punishes them for their rebellion by sending poisonous snakes, yikes, into their camp. And the snakes are biting some of the people, and some of the people are getting sick, and some of the people are dying. Bad. Bad way to be judged. All judgment's bad. That judgment's really bad. And um, yet in his mercy, God tells Moses to craft this bronze statue of a serpent and to put it on top of his staff and to lift the staff up in the middle of the camp. And whoever looks at the serpent, whoever lifts up their eyes to see the serpent will be healed of the poisonous venom of the snake, of the poisonous venom of God's judgment. That's what Jesus is referring to here in John 3. But he's saying that he is the final bronze serpent in the wilderness. He's saying that he is the one who is going to be lifted up but he will be lifted up on a cross. And he's saying that any who look to him, who see him in faith, just like any who looked at that bronze serpent in the wilderness many, many centuries prior, will be forgiven and will have eternal life. Jesus is saying that I have come to heal the poison of human rebellion. I have come to heal the death that is caused by sin. And so the work of the Spirit enables men and women and children to see Jesus for who he is with eyes of faith. That's what's necessary, Jesus says, for any and for all of us to be, quote, saved, to enter the kingdom, to have eternal life. So to summarize it for us, even the best of humanity requires a radical encounter with God to get the eternal and abundant life that God offers us in the gospel. That encounter is orchestrated by God. He sends the Spirit to give us new birth, birth from above, and therefore he enables us, he gives us the ability to see Jesus offering himself as a payment for the guilt and the penalty of sin when he's lifted up on the cross. And now we can see finally that all of this comes... All of this comes from the love of the Father. That's the third point. Even the best of humanity needs the new birth from God received as a gift from the Father. Look at verse 16. It's probably the most famous verse in the Bible. And you could call it a summary of the entire Gospel of John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life or abundant life or life to the fullest. The final point that Jesus wants to make for Nicodemus and for you and for me is that all of this work of the Spirit, all of this work of the Son flows and comes from the Father. The motivating, driving force in salvation is the overwhelming and overflowing fountain of love that comes from God the Father. And the heart of this verse is getting at this question. What is the real God like? And the answer is this. He is a God of infinitely abounding, self-giving love. 
This is ultimately demonstrated in the giving of Jesus. John tells us in his first letter, 1 John, this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now remember, way back in John 1, John told us that Jesus came to make God known, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 18. And here we see who God is from John three sixteen. Here's who God is. He is a God who did not just send his son to make himself known in the sense that we can download some information about what God is really like into our hard drives and keep it on file for the day when we need it. No, Jesus came to make God known in the sense that he makes it known that God wants to demonstrate and manifest the depths of his eternal and unfathomable love for his people in Jesus. He sent the Son to show that the eternal love that he has for the Son is also meant to be shared by all of us. And God is willing even to give up the Son to death to ensure that that takes place. Do you see God in that way? Do you see God as a father, as a father who is happy and even delights to send his only son to die in order that we might be brought home as his children? That that shows us what an unfathomably gracious and kind God he truly is. Plenty of other religions can give you a God who forgives, but none but the gospel of Jesus presents to us a God who is a father, who welcomes and embraces rebellious children freely by his grace, never to send us away. Now, there's so many stories that can illustrate that, but one of the stories I always think about from history is uh, the life of Martin Luther. You might know Martin Luther. He was a 15th, 16th century um, German monk who early in his life really, really tried hard to do all the right things religiously. And yet he was miserable. And he even confesses in some of his writings that he didn't, not only did he not feel love for God, he actually hated God. He hated God because he saw judge God primarily as a judge who was just waiting to condemn him. And he tells a story of one night when he's walking from, um, some meeting back to his monastery through a field in the middle of a rainstorm and the lightning strikes and he gets so afraid that he crouches down in the field covering his head with fear and with shame. And he illustrates the point by saying that that's exactly how I felt when I thought about God. But through the study of the scriptures and through the work of the Holy Spirit, Luther eventually was transformed to see that God is not primarily the thundering Zeus on high waiting to strike you with his lightning bolt. God is primarily a father who sent his son in love. And Luther, who formerly had a difficult time loving and worshiping God, had his life completely changed. And in fact, the world changed because of Luther making that insight. And at one point, Luther writes this, God has revealed and disclosed the deepest profundity of his fatherly heart, his sheer inexpressible love. We may look into his heart and see how boundlessly he loves us. That will warm our hearts, setting them aglow with thankfulness. Okay, two quick things about 316 and then a story, then we're done. Okay, first, look at the emphasis on the word there, whoever. 
Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, earlier we saw that even the best of humanity needs a radical encounter with God to enter into eternal life. But here we see that even the worst of humanity, (laughs) even the worst of us, whoever can believe in Jesus, can see Jesus for who he is and for why he came and to receive forgiveness, pardon, and life. Jesus is saying that no one can come to God on their own, not even the most religious, not even the most moral, not even the most impressive, but anyone can come to God through faith in Jesus by confessing their sin and their guilt, by admitting their need, by seeing Jesus as sent by the loving Father to rescue, and by believing in him, whoever believes. And then second, notice that John says, or Jesus says, whoever believes in him, I think actually not to mess up John 3.16, but a better way to translate that is whoever believes into him, into him. What does it mean to believe? We tend to think when we read believe in that if you can accept some bare historical facts about Jesus, you're good to go. That, okay, I believe that Jesus was a man who lived I believe that Jesus died on a cross. I believe, you can even say, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. But that's not really the fullness of what belief means in the Bible. It's better to think of believe as believe into. To believe means to entrust yourself to God as he shows himself in Jesus entirely. To believe is to rest in Jesus. It's to It's to fully embrace the Lord as the one who is full of grace and truth for you. So where are you? Are you resting fully in Jesus? Are you believing into him? God sent his son on a great rescue mission. The world was clearly going under. But God came into history in the work of Jesus Christ and in the giving of the Spirit to pull us out again and to secure us to himself. Some years ago, um, my brother Andrew, who's 14 months younger than me, and myself, many years ago, um, decided to try bungee jumping. And um, poor decision, although I'm still here to tell about the story. And uh, it actually technically wasn't a bungee jump. It was one of those kind of massive bungee swings where it's basically a huge rope that connects you in what I thought was a very insecure-looking strap. And uh, it's a tandem thing, so I got in right next to my brother, and they pull, pull you all the way back in agonizingly slow fashion. So the whole way up, you're able to recount all of the great moments of your former life and think about why you decided to make this choice. Now, my brother, Andrew, is more stout-hearted than I am, no question about it, and he's also crazy. So this was his idea, and we're right next to each other, like he's right here. And so on the way up, I keep looking at him like, seriously, what are we doing here? And he's like, this is going to be great. This is going to be awesome. So we finally get to the very, very top and literally are parallel with the ground, looking straight down. And there's this little cord that you're supposed to pull, (laughs) to enjoy the experience. And uh, of course, the cord is on my side. And I'm up there, I'm like, I'm not pulling this thing. I, I would rather sit here and stare at the earth's surface for the rest of my life than pull this cord. And if Andrew unhesitatingly reaches across me and yanks the cord, and in that instant, I thought, 
Actually, I didn't think this. This is the sermon reflection. In that instant, it became evident whether I thought, I thought nothing except sheer panic. That's what I thought. But in that instant, all that mattered, all that mattered was the strength of that rope, right? And the strength of the harness. What I thought about that experience and the confidence that I had in the rope was utterly irrelevant. The only thing that was relevant, the only thing that was relevant was the strength of what was holding me. We plunged into the abyss, swung back up and swung back, and I screamed like a crazy person and survived by God's grace. And now I'm able to use this in an illustration 20 years later. That's kind of what faith is. Faith is not based on the strength of your certainty or fortitude. Faith is based on the strength of the one in whom you are believing. Are you entrusting yourself to Jesus? Because that's what he's telling Nicodemus to do. And at the end of the day, he's saying, I'm the only one who is strong enough to hold you. To hold you through life, through death, and into eternity. Not even Nicodemus can carry himself that far. And none of us can carry ourselves that far. For us to get carried that far, Jesus has to show up. And he's done that in sending the Spirit to give new birth, in being lifted up on the cross to forgive our sins, and right now in the gospel being preached to each one of us that we might see him and believe in him. Will you believe in him that you might have life in his name? Let's pray.